The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we're going to look at chapter 21 in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart. He titles this chapter, The Psychology of Virtue, Redemption, and Forgiveness. And I really like this approach to morality or integrity or virtue because it has a, gives it a really pragmatic flavor. If we're trying to take it on as something we do because it works, you know, it makes our life better. The Buddha often taught about sila, it's the Pali word for integrity or moral conduct, taught that this is, in a sense, the most direct way to be happy. So, you know, I'm assuming we're all interested in being happy. And if we are, it's like it's interesting how it doesn't occur to us to develop our integrity. It, it occurs to me to have ice cream when I want to be happy or watch TV or take a nap or, you know, all kinds of ways that I, with even a, just a little reflection, realize it's a limited way to be happy. But I pursue those. But something like developing more generosity or developing kindness or forgiveness, patience or restraint, it doesn't occur to me naturally that, oh, I could do this and become more happy. I could pay close attention to my speech or closer attention to my speech and uh, refrain from the kind of speech that isn't quite right and cultivate the speech that really is good. And this would be much more effective in developing happiness than like, really thinking about what I should do for my vacation, really getting it right. So this is what we can do for the next couple of weeks. We can maybe change to some degree, you know, change our attitude about ethical conduct and really see it in a positive light like, oh, I'm so happy I have this arena to pay attention to because it's like pure gold. I pay a little attention to the area of integrity and I get real payback. It really affects my life and it affects other people's lives, too, when we pay attention to integrity, to our conduct in the world. And I don't think we argue. You know, there's really no arguments about reverence for life or kindness or speaking the truth. I mean, I know we could create some controversy, you know, should you speak the truth in this or, you know, when somebody's killing your mother, do you have the right to physically restrain them? You know, there's all these sort of conversations that aren't really relevant, but it makes it seem like it's controversial, like non-harming would be controversial or speaking the truth would be controversial. It's not controversial. In a way, we, we feel it in our heart. So in Buddhism, 
the foundation of morality, integrity, virtue, goodness, it isn't out there as some objective standard. It's something that we know directly in our heart, like what's right or wrong. Now, clearly, given the way that we behave sometimes, we can be disconnected from that intelligence or that wisdom that knows the difference between right and wrong or good and bad. But when, we've, when we're sensitive, we have the space and the interest to feel, to see, we'll get the feedback we need. Oh, this doesn't feel right. What I said yesterday to that person, it doesn't feel right now. That's why, you know, even if we can do something bad and get away with it, nobody sees us, we know we did it. And even if we are able to somehow distract ourselves or tell ourselves a story about why we did it and how that justifies why we did it, still, no matter how effective we are at covering up our unskillful actions, on some level, the heart or mind knows that that wasn't right. And it knows it wasn't right because the heart directly feels it. Whenever we do something from a contracted place, a strongly self-centered place, like fear or a strong sense of greed, you know, it carries with it a very strong sense of self, very contracted sense of self. And that's the moral implication of that act. It actually doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, or it matters less what other people think, because the contracted uh, state of self, the, contracted, the contraction in the heart itself, is the fruit of that unskillful action. And in a sense, we carry that everywhere. Until we um, sort of can turn toward that, the residual of that contraction, feel it, feel the pain of it, it's like a weight we carry along with us. I'm sure we see it more easily in other people. Think about times when you've talked to another person who did something that, let's say, was unskillful. And uh, you know they can tell you all kind of stories about why they did it and how they were justified. But you get a sense, just listening to them, intuiting where they're at, you get a sense that they're burdened by that. Why else would they feel like they've got to convince you that they were right? in doing what they did. And you can start to intuit and see among your friends and loved ones and acquaintances uh, the kinds of weight that we all carry, not just them, us too, of course. But you can get a sense of how that operates in the human heart and be motivated, more and more motivated to, because you know we only see what we see. And we don't feel or see what we don't feel or see. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means our different mechanisms of denial and distraction are effective to some degree. And we haven't yet woken up to the unfinished business in our lives. This is from Ajahn Manindo. He's a well-known Western Buddhist monk. And uh, I think still, he's the abbot of a monastery in northern England, Harnham. And this is just a few paragraphs on the five, pre five precepts. He says, 
the Buddha was once asked by his personal attendant, the Venerable Ananda, about the place of sila, or moral integrity, on the path of enlightenment. The Buddha replied that purity of conduct of body and speech led to a heart that was free from remorse. This heart of well-being, he taught, was the very foundation of a practice aimed toward perfect freedom. I think that's the important thing, that we can't somehow bypass this work. You know, it's okay to take up meditation and not worry so much about your conduct in the world. But eventually, the sensitivity that we develop in meditation will just naturally start getting really interested about our speech, about our thought, about our actions. It's just going to, they're just going to stand out, both when our actions are very appropriate and, and beautiful, and also the times, of course, when they're a little off or a lot off. And then he goes on, he says, the five precepts are what the Buddha offered as guidelines with which we can train to become accurately aware of our intention in all that we do, say, and eventually think. They are not moral injunctions, as there is no external authority judging and controlling our lives. Deep in our hearts, we already know what accords with truth, but at times, we all, um, we all tend to lose perspective. These precepts support us in engaging and support us in recognizing and remembering the truth of the way things are. Dhamma. And of course, one of the things we notice as we pay attention more and more in life is we notice that what we think, what we say, and what we do, that there are consequences to that. And the consequences revolve around intention. So in Buddhism, we have these four or these five trainings that the Buddha offered for lay people. It's really just the beginning of this work on integrity. So it's nice to think about it in three ways. And this is a typical way of it being taught in the Buddhist tradition there's sort of a more gross or dense way that moral integrity is taught as restraint, like what we shouldn't do. And we tend to hate this part. You know, We don't like somebody to tell us what we shouldn't do. But ideally, these restraints that we feel, they come out of a, directly out of our experience. You know, we've been burnt enough times that now we have a moral injunction. You know, Don't touch a hot stove. And it doesn't feel like the voice of my mother saying, you know, honey, don't touch the hot stove. Now we know on our bones, directly from our own experience, I should be careful around a hot stove. Now in the same way, in terms of ethical conduct, if you've ended up ruining a number of your really good relationships because you've slept around, then the next time you're in a really good relationship and you find yourself around another person who you're attracted to, it will be like being around a hot stove. And that force of restraint will just arise in your heart. Honey, be careful. You're in a really good relationship that you care about. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you think. Because there are consequences. And a lot of times with unskillful behavior, we think we can think about it. And it's all, we're only thinking about it. We're not actually doing it. But the thing is, if we think about it, we tend, we're much more likely to do something about it. 
it's a lot easier to refrain ourselves from thinking about something that's unskillful than it is from doing something that's unskillful. So let's begin at that level. You know, it's relatively easy to redirect our mind. Like, you know, I notice sometimes when I'm giving a talk, and not that this is morally wrong, but, you know, I'll notice I think about like treating myself afterwards. And uh, I'm sure you see this in your own mind at times when you're working, that, oh, I'll be done soon, and then I'll be able to you know, you just sort of name your own personal reward that you like. And I notice that if I don't, if I just sort of let that go without recognizing what's going on, then when I'm done, it's like hard not to do what I thought about that many times. It's like setting something in motion. So part of moral integrity and virtue isn't just what we're doing on the surface, like whether we actually cheat or steal or hit or gossip or say mean things. But it's if we're really interested in developing this moral integrity and, and really deriving the happiness, or what the Buddha would call the bliss of blamelessness, that real joy, then we have to be interested in all the little movements in the mind and heart, the kind of little moments of complaining and the little moments of judging and feeling superior or self-hatred, all the different manifestations of greed and aversion and delusion that get acted out in our minds and our speech and our action. Because I notice a lot um, a kind of, I think there's some arrogance in it. And I remember it all the way back to like kindergarten, certainly in first grade and second grade, I remember several very clear examples of like, well, I don't do that. You know, this kid, you know, <coughs> you know, their parents haven't taught them what's right or wrong, but I know you're not supposed to do that. And kind of self-righteous uh, morality. And when we have that, there's a certain sense of, well, if I'm not as bad as this person, then I'm okay. And you, you sort of rest on our laurels. Well, I don't have to look at my moral integrity, my virtue, my actions, because I know I'm better than X, Y, and Z. So we, we're okay. And we don't really bring any wisdom, any careful attention to our actions. So that's why we have to just completely change our attitude about it. So it isn't about some external standard that we meet and then we use it to judge ourselves or compare ourselves to others. It's really about this deep wish to be happy and a linking up the deep wish to be happy, which is so fundamental to our psyche. This is not everybody has this deep wish to be happy. It's very much connected to our desire to survive, our survival instinct. It really just comes out of that. And we're linking that deep wish to be happy with um, this reverence for life, this respect for life, and this universal care. Like just as I care about this life, we recognize where everybody cares about their life. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to feel like they're respected or they belong. And then we start to see that as we really 
pay attention to reverence for life and care, that we feel better. It's like we trust our life, our heart. We feel more and more like we belong in our life. We belong in the communities that we live in. It just feels good. That's the bottom line. You know, it's like uh, one of those aphorisms we don't quite believe, you know, that generous people are happy or that kind people are happy. Somehow we've been trained to think that they're schmucks, you know, that they're sort of the people we take advantage of because, you know, somebody is sentimentally kind and they're just the person that gets taken advantage of by life. But that's not, uh, if we really look at our experience, it doesn't have to be that way. That love and reverence for life can be a real power in the world and intelligence. And again, it's linking, it's linking morality up with this deep reverence for life and also this deep intelligence. Like, it comes out of understanding cause and effect. So it's, the mind really is getting how it all works. It's not about being idealistic or sentimental or wishful thinking about how we'd like the world to be. It's actually a deep grounding in the way that it is. Oh, this works. Being generous works. Being stingy doesn't work. Taking care of everybody as best we can works. Being out just for ourselves doesn't work. Jack Cornfield covers this early on in this chapter in his book, The Wise Heart. I'll just read a couple chapters here, or a couple paragraphs. He says, in Buddhism, this reverence for all life is called virtue, and it is considered fundamental. Ajahn Chah loved to say, it's simple. Living a virtuous life makes the heart peaceful. And then he goes on, those who understand virtue live with dignity, ease, nobility, and happiness. And needless to say, it's hard to meditate after a day of lying, cheating, and killing. By our virtue, we protect ourselves and other beings from harm. He goes on, to our modern ears, the word virtue can sound old-fashioned. We might associate it with Victorian schoolgirls being taught to be modest, prudent, patient, and obedient. Yet in Buddhism, virtue is not about young girls or tepid, law-abiding weaklings. It is the foundation for radical change. It means that we carry ourselves with truthfulness, integrity, passion, and purpose in all that we do. This is the powerful, even fierce force that ennobles individuals and inspires social justice and equality worldwide. Just as a life of virtue brings happiness, it also packs a punch. And uh, this is my sense, too, just from my own experience. And as I mentioned, from early on, I had this, but early on it was also tainted, like I said, with a lot of self-righteousness. I had a really strong identity as a kid. I mean, not in, a, not in an obvious way, I don't think, or at least not too much, um, about sort of being good and not being one of the bad people. And over the years, you know, or decades even, slowly teasing out the self-righteousness and really unpacking or discovering the joy. There's a real joy in 
respecting moral integrity. Like, and, and it's like uh, those of us who like projects, building things, putting things together, developing relationships. This is the ultimate project, joyful project, more than anything else, any hobby you can imagine. The best hobby is sila, or moral integrity. It is a lot of fun to be observing our thought, our speech, and our actions, and really getting good at constructing thoughts, speech, and action that brings happiness, that makes the heart feel good in the world. And we start, it's like we're crafting a really beautiful life where people tend to like us and to feel safe around us. And where we go to bed at night, and as the day passes in front of us, it leaves a good taste. You know how it is. I have some of those moments, I'm sure most of you do too, where we bring certain choices or actions that we did, certain words that we spoke, and we cringe, even decades later. Is there anybody in this room that can't think of something they did a long time ago that makes them cringe? I mean, we've all made fools out of ourselves. We've all done things that have harmed people that we now regret. And so how much lighter we would feel if we had avoided, had prevented some of those unskillful actions. We'd be really grateful to have been more skillful. And we can turn it around now. We can begin to turn that ship around, you know, that tendency to get caught in our strong fear-based stories or greed-based stories that come up when those strong triggers get triggered. When we really see something we like, it's amazing how the mind can start justifying that it has the right to take it. I mentioned uh, maybe Sunday night when I was giving the same talk. You know, we have this uh, lost and found box down in the basement. People, unfortunately, tend to leave things here. Maybe they're all blissed out when they leave and forget they brought a coat or a hat or... Sometimes, I don't know how it works, but people's shoes stay here. (laughs) And so, you know, once people see volunteers or leaders or other people see that there's something in the lost and found box and it's been there for a week, it's been there for a month, it's been there six months, you know, and I really like it, that's so cool. There's this strong desire like, oh, well, I, could, I should take that. So we have, you know, we have this restraint that we practice here at Common Ground, which is we don't take things from the lost and found box, even if it's been there two years. I mean, now, you know, after a quarter, we try to be regular, you know, usually after three months, you know, we send out an email to the community, say, hey, in a few weeks, we're going to give everything away that's in the lost and found to some charity. So if you think you lost something, look through the box. And sometimes we'll remind people, but don't take anything that's not yours. Just take what's yours. Because we're practicing not taking what isn't given. It's one of the precepts. And it's just because we don't, we don't want to, even something as subtle as that, you know, we don't know if that person was going to come back the next day. Or how would we feel if we're there at the center wearing the shawl that was there for six months. And right behind us is the person who left it there, you know, eight months ago. And uh, 
you know, just that's the kind of division, that's the sort of fear-based life that we want to avoid. We, we don't want that fear that we're going to bump into the person who once owned this and was wondering where it was. So the first way we practice, and whether we like it or not, we, we want to uncover how happy we are to have restraint. It's a dense way to practice moral integrity, but we all need restraint. Think about what would happen if we had had no restraint in life, no moral restraint, what we would have said or done and how much trouble that would have caused for ourselves and others. So we want to be grateful for this, what we sometimes call wholesome fear or wholesome concern, like a conscience. We'll talk more about this next week. And wholesome regret when we make mistakes. It, like, it helps us restrain ourselves because we remember the mistakes from the past. And it's like our breaks. So. This is an important, it isn't the only part of moral integrity, but it's an important part of moral integrity. You know, in the same way that when we're doing something, if there's any danger, like if we're hiking along a cliff or you know, working with a power tool that's dangerous, it's like there's a heightened attention, as if there's a voice. Be careful. You could cut your fingers off. I have a lot of relatives that have been farmers for a long time, you know, and it's very easy for them to have a mangled finger. Several of my cousins, my uncles, have mangled fingers from, you know, one machine or another. And so I'm sure it isn't long, it isn't after too many mistakes before when they're operating big machines that there's that heightened concern. And we can have that same thing that voice of restraint or concern operating when we're in the proximity of unskillfulness, whatever it might be. When we were building the building, or we, um, we didn't build it, but we did a major renovation. It was a greasy 50s diner when we bought the building in 2006. Spent a couple of years renovating it. And then, so we had, a, we had a volunteer architect who just did a wonderful job for us. and. Uh, so we were trying to figure out, you know, like the kinds of doors, kinds of windows, all the, all the thousands of decisions. And one of the things that, uh, I don't know, Rick or architect said it, but so the door to my office, uh, well, you know, he was saying or somebody said, well, ministers always need to have a window on their door because it supports moral integrity. You know, so when you're having meetings, you know, or when you're sitting with someone you might be attracted to, the fact that you have a window on your door is protecting for everybody. So it's like all these little things. Now we can do all these things, the restraint side of moral integrity, and get really tight about it and judgmental, like sort of projecting on why aren't they restraining themselves. But the way, the appropriate way to relate to restraint is to be grateful for that it's a kind of wisdom, you know, like we understand cause and effect. And so we're not going to put ourselves in a situation where the causes are going to lead to inappropriate actions. We're going to restrain ourselves, refrain from putting ourselves in that situation. In the same way that an alcoholic 
who understands what's going on is going to refrain from hanging out in a bar because they understand cause and effect. When I'm around a lot of people who are drinking, I really want to drink. And it's a lot more likely that I'm going to drink or whatever it might be for us. And then the next level of moral integrity, the next way we practice, we don't want to just practice with restraint or refraining using wholesome fear, but this whole side of joy that I mentioned earlier and, and actually develop that as a practice. Like, how can I make my heart really happy? So we, we cultivate various ideals, like the ideal of being generous. And we just start practicing generosity in a way that makes us happy. We talk about this at Common Ground in terms of, you probably have noticed, we don't charge for any of the programs here at the center. But of course, we have to pay for the building. The teachers get support for their livelihood. We have to pay for our bookkeeper and our office manager and you know all the other expenses of the center. But all of that is done through generosity. And the idea is that it should make people happy to volunteer their time or contribute money to the center. And if it's not making you happy, why are you giving? Don't give out of guilt. Find a way to give or support in a way that makes you happy. And so this is, this is the other, uh, the second way we practice moral integrity. We just start working like you could work with the five precepts and put it into the positive. So if you're not familiar with the five Buddhist precepts, there's I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what's not given to me. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct or harming somebody through my sexual behavior. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech, harsh speech, even idle speech, like speech that isn't helpful. And then the fifth is I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that increases the probability of being unskillful. So these are the five precepts. And now we could put these into the positive. Now the traditional way that they're recited is, is ter in terms of refraining. You know, we're refraining from intoxicating the mind in a way that would lead to unskillful behavior. But we could put them into the positive. So instead of uh, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings, we could undertake this ideal of, of reverence for life taking care of life. Instead of refraining from stealing, it could be I undertake the, the ideal, I'm, I'm sort of cultivating the ideal of, of generosity, of supporting, of looking for opportunities to be helpful. Really helpful, not like on the surface helpful, but in a way that leaves a good taste for everybody involved. You know, as a practice of joy, not as a practice like I should, because, you know, I want people to be impressed by my behavior, that it makes me feel good. And that's what we teach at Common Ground in terms of donations. It's like really pay attention to how you contribute your time or do your practice or contribute money and really cultivate joy. Give in a way that makes you happy. Volunteer your time in a way that makes you happy. Do your practice in a way that makes you happy. And that really protects the center. Just like it would protect an intimate relationship, 
you could try it out in your intimate relationships, like giving in a way that makes you happy, taking care of that person in a way that makes you happy. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times when we have to show up, we have to take care of, and it's a little bit of a strain. But even then, we should be able to look beyond the sort of surface, I'm really tired, I'd rather just be going to bed, into, yeah, but on the other hand, it feels really good not to be confused by that feeling like, I just want to go to bed. It feels really good to be able to show up. It feels really good to be able to trust my heart not to have to sort of listen to a relatively gross desire and to connect with something a little deeper, more resonant, like I really want to be able to be there when my partner needs me, even if it's a little tough, even if it makes me stretch a little bit. It feels good. And this is true with generosity in terms of contributing money to a cause you care about. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes give money that you know, brings up some fear, but on the when we look a little deeper, it feels good. It feels like I'll take the uncertainty that comes up, the little nudgy feeling like, ooh, is this too much? Because when I think about that organization or that person, I feel really, this gift feels really good, even though it's a stretch. So this is the practice. And just to remember that on this level, more the practice of moral integrity is really the barometer is joy. Like we feel good. It leaves a good taste. And you can do it with speech, like how to use your speech, not like just refraining from making mistakes, but how can you use your speech to set in motion beautiful things? Like just the right word that supports somebody, that makes somebody have a, a little bit better of a day. Or, you know, our commitment to keeping the mind clear by, you know, wise avoidance of uh, intoxicants or wise use of intoxicants. Um, just that commitment to clarity. Like what a gift that is. There's so much darkness in the world, so much confusion and lying. You know, why would we want to live in a way or consume in a way that adds more confusion or more darkness? So when somebody really cultivates clarity in any way that you can do that, it's a real gift to everybody to be moving through the world, not intoxicated by ideas, by chemicals, by anything, but just really grounded, balanced. That's a gift. It's always a gift to be around somebody who's balanced and grounded. Because whether we know it or not, we're all sympathetically vibrating together. So when we're, we're around a really agitated person or a greedy person, we pick up on it. Have you noticed that like somebody is like really exuberant about some sale? And all of a sudden, we start to feel like we need things. Even though a few minutes ago, there was nothing we needed. But like it's almost we're afraid we're going to miss a big sale or, a, you know, just the thing. But when we're around somebody who's really content or somebody who's just sort of grounded in their own body, somebody who's seen what's beautiful and just naturally appreciative, we start to vibrate like they do, sympathetically. So it's a real gift. And we start to feel that it's a cause for joy because we feel like we're contributing 
that we're a cause for goodness in the world. So you can think about these three ways, or these two ways. So the first is restraint, and then the second is working with the practice as a practice of joy, like an ideal, and the cultivation of that ideal is joyful. And there's even a third, more subtle way to practice moral integrity. And this is, it's more subtle. It's about <clears throat> realizing moments where the goodness of our thought, our speech, and our action is just a spontaneous unfolding. We just find the mind being generous or find the mind being clear or careful or being skillful. But it's effortless. That there's nobody trying to be good, nobody trying even to cultivate joy. And that kind of moral integrity has a lightness to it. We can call that freedom. You know, freedom from the density of any sort of self-centered action. So here the morality has really come to fruition. It's like in its ultimate bloom, where the goodness doesn't have any friction of anybody trying to be good. And you want to notice that lightness, that freedom, and the trustworthiness of that. Because that's ultimately where we want to go with the practice. First, you know, because we need to, we need to set in motion refraining restraint where it's appropriate. And then we need to cultivate the joy, because there's so much healing that comes with developing goodness because it feels good. It makes us happy. And then from that contentment and that feeling good, then we're, we can more, uh, more easily attune to this subtle freedom that arises in moments where the goodness is effortless, it's natural, it's spontaneous. And then that practice is more about trusting the capacity for the mind or heart or this life to be good. We're just trusting it to be good. And then if it falls short, if some old pattern gets ignited and manifests. That's okay because that clarity that is there in this third way of practicing will pick up very quickly when something begins to stink and there's some self-centeredness to our thought or words or action or even something really unskillful. It will pick up, pick up on it. It will be like, you know, the heart's very light and buoyant and uh, free, and then all of a sudden we feel like we weigh 200 pounds. And it would just, oh yeah, this isn't the direction I'm interested in. We may, it, the, the problem there is not to meet that mistake with hatred, but with understanding and compassion. So this is not the direction but I understand. I understand that when causes and conditions are such, these old, primitive, survival-based, fear-based patterns are going to get triggered. And my actions, my speech, my thoughts are going to be not so skillful. I understand. I care about these old patterns. But I'm not going to do that. So a moment of restraint, a moment of remembering some positive ideal, I know my heart is capable of being good, of being patient, of being loving. And then back, maybe in just a few moments, to that more effortless, spontaneous goodness. So even if we this fall from grace, we don't need to be feel like we've ruined it. This is a really neat thing about the practice is 
this recognition that that just because there is a moment or a day where there's been a lot of negativity or a lot of unskillfulness, we don't have to feel like there's this 10,000-foot mountain we have to climb up to get back to being good. Goodness is never far away, right? Because even if we've been terribly unskillful, in the next moment, we can forgive ourselves. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences to our unskillful behavior. But right then, in forgiving ourselves, we're already acting very skillfully. And we should feel very good about that, that forgiveness. And then maybe that fearless willingness to make amends. So we have about 15 minutes left. We'll continue this for at least a couple more weeks, but it'd be nice to hear from people. I'm guessing there's a lot of experience in the room of being skillful and being unskillful. And you can share specific situations or just be general. But just about how you've learned, and especially about these three levels of practice. It would be nice to hear some examples or questions you have about restraint or refraining, about working with a positive ideal, and moments of that effortless goodness. Yeah, please say your names. Um, Derek. Derek. Um, Yeah. Well, they're very similar. And um, I think it would even be appropriate to call, you know, to say they're the same. But I think what's important is to distinguish the motivation between the two. I mean, distinguish two motivations. So one motivation is uh, like it's coming out of an intelligence or a wisdom that understands cause and effect. So it's really the foundation of compassion. What is compassion? It's not just caring about our suffering or somebody else's suffering, but it's also this willingness to step into the messiness of this world of cause and effect and do whatever we can do to alleviate the suffering. So that's the proper motivation where we're looking at some messy part of our life or a potential mess, like a potential mistake we might make getting involved in a relationship we shouldn't get involved in because we're in a committed relationship, let's say. And we, we see, we understand that, well, if I have this conversation, if I start to flirt, it, it you know, dramatically increases the probability that I'm going to have an affair with this person. So seeing, you know, with that intelligence, that wisdom, we see cause and effect. And it motivates us, like, I don't want to cause harm to my partner. I don't want to cause harm to my life, my heart. I don't want to cause harm to this person. So I'm going to refrain. Now, an unskillful kind of suppression would be uh, one that's just based on some self-centered notion, like wanting just to control life. So it's subtle, because we are refraining, we are suppressing that desire to talk, to flirt, to get involved, that it's really based on this wholesome motivation. And these, the difference between a wholesome motivation and an unwholesome motivation may be very subtle. And it's often mixed. You know, sometimes we're there and we feel the compassion, but we also feel the self-hatred. And that we don't want to water that motivation, like, I'm bad, or that's a bad thing. I hate that bad thing. 
and we want to sort of squash it. We always want to use understanding and the compassion and wisdom of understanding. Oh, I get it. I get why this would be happen- happening. I get why there's an attraction. It's not personal, actually, that we're attracted to this person. It's just part of the way the mind, the heart, the body's conditioned that we're drawn, attracted to people. And we don't need to be afraid of it. And we don't need to judge it as good or bad. So bad suppression is when it's based on a simplistic notion of good and bad. Wise suppression is based on understanding of cause and effect, impersonal cause and effect, and caring about this world of cause and effect, and being willing to participate in it. We can't avoid it. We can't avoid the world of cause and effect. We can't avoid being sexual beings. We can't avoid liking power. We can't avoid wanting security, right? Who in the room doesn't want to be safe? We all want to be safe. When is enough safety enough safety? Like how secure does our front door need to be before we feel safe? After our break-in in December, you know, we somebody broke in and took some money. Since then, we have a, a much more secure way of taking care of our money, the donna, the donations that come in. But you know, we went through the, all this discussion about what kind of security system do we want? You know, how much security is enough? So fear-based, you know, it's just, it's endless. And it makes the mind, the body, tighter and tighter and tighter. So we want suppression, or what we're calling restraint or refraining, to come from that wisdom and that compassion, not from fear or controlling. Yeah, Miski. I have a question about, I mean, I understand what you were saying for the most part. tradition, and I found this personally true, if we spend a lot of formal or formal practice time cultivating mindfulness of the body, it really helps. Because when we're really sensitive to the body, then it's like our ongoing barometer for what the thought, the quality of the thought is. So if our thought really is unskillful, we might not notice that because the thought is seductive and we're sort of lost. But if the body starts to get tight, and we've been cultivating a sensitivity to the body over a long time, over years, then it's almost like a little alarm goes off. Something wrong is going on. What is it? Oh, I'm thinking about this. You know, this thing I'm attached to that I want. Or I'm, I'm dwelling in anger and hatred. And then, we'll, so it's the body that wakes us up that something unskillful is going on. We can't actually do something unskillful without both the body and mind getting tight. Try it sometime. Try doing something unskillful and watch your body. It doesn't lie. And that's really useful. 
so so this is why like when we're sitting you know the body is often one of our anchors we use we just keep bringing the attention back to the body and we cultivate this full body awareness and you can do this just by being aware of the breath but as your mindfulness of breathing increases there in the background feel the whole body so as you're breathing in and you're really sensitive to the actual physicality of the breath it's not like you're not feeling the whole body it's right there next to the attention to the actual sensations like of the air touching the nostrils or the the belly expanding so it's not an exclusive attention to the breath but it's inclusive we're feeling the whole body as we're aware of the in breath and the whole body as we're aware of the out breath and then it just sort of stays with us through the day so that i think is really useful is to be in the body and to and to see the body as a mirror of the mind yeah so your name ben ben um, i i'd like to clarify a little bit uh, when you say that um, virtue uh, does virtue lead to happiness or uh, is the point of or is happiness an actual outcome of virtue uh, or should we just be virtuous so that we can become happy i think it's both the means and the end like being virtuous is already a happy state and leads to happiness and i think we want to see this directly like really experiment and then let's say you're doing something that appears to you to be virtuous but you don't feel happy you feel tight then i would really reflect deeply then and then later in hindsight like was it actually virtuous you know was it just virtuous on the surface but underneath there was some self-centered thing going on to really see and to see like is that in principle does it hold true always that goodness and happiness go hand in hand goodness or virtue or moral integrity is a happy state and leads to happy states now we can all think about times when like maybe something some moral decision was difficult but the question is once we made the decision like if we're contemplating not making the decision it shouldn't feel good so in that struggle it, there might be some tension but once we've done something good it should feel good doing it and every time we recall it the buddha said this about generosity it's like not only does it feel good to give but every time we think about having given it feels good like that's something we can do and this is another thing that's in the buddhist tradition quite often when people are in difficult states their friend might ask them well think about some of the good things you've done in your life because it creates a sort of protective field to remember that this heart is capable of goodness because i remember that time when i could have been a jerk but i didn't and i and i really ended up doing something right and we remember it and we feel good again just like we felt in that moment we feel good again and it's not like it wears out like oh i've thought about that too many times now when i think about that good thing it doesn't deliver anymore that hasn't been my experience you know that it always feels good to remember things we've done well that we you know we're coming from a good place 
Thanks. One of my favorite precepts is the one about um, not taking that which is not freely given. I noticed when you say you don't say freely, but I found that makes such a difference because yeah. for a simple example, if I go in and pay $10 and someone gives me the wrong change, that wasn't freely given, that was given. And I mean, I have children I'm trying to teach that to, too, and it just seems like I have never been in a situation with any ambiguity about whether to take someone that that phrase has not answered completely and, and um, un- un- unequivocally whether I should take something or not. So I was wondering why you don't use the word freely. No, no, I, I often do, and, and that's a really good thing to correct. I'm glad you did. And that's generally how it is translated, freely, not freely given. So I think, and you make exactly the right point that I needs to be made. No, no, well, <laughs> you should correct people when they make mistakes. So, no, that was good. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, and it really, it brings out something that's really important. And, and it's really that refinement that we're interested in. You know, not just this gross level of meeting some basic bar and then I'm good enough. That it matters whether it's just given or if it's... Because, you know, we do get away with it if somebody gives us the wrong change. You know, we can get away with it. But in terms of being happy, it doesn't feel good unless it was freely given, consciously given. Yeah, thanks. What's your name? Gene. Yeah, thanks, Gene. Yeah, Louis. The absence of the heart being burdened is one way. Like in this context, I think that might be a nice definition. There's a freedom, you know, Buddhism, Buddhism, happiness, not always, but often because it's skillful, not because any one definition is going to be perfect because it's just words, but it's often skillful to use a negative to describe the positive, like the absence of weight in the heart. Or often the Buddha would say, happiness is the absence of greed, anger, and delusion. Or freedom, really, more to the point, is the absence of the weight of greed, the weight of aversion, the weight of denial and distraction. So that's the happiness of, the the bliss of blamelessness. So that's another example, like happiness when there's, we don't blame ourselves for anything. We don't feel bad about anything. I guess... One way that I've been thinking about it is being able to deal with things as they are or as they come up and remain interested in life and capacity and compassion. And that is a freedom like when we don't trust our heart because we regularly make moral mistakes, then you wouldn't have that experience you have. Does that make sense? But when we trust the heart like the heart's capacity to show up, to see clearly, and to respond appropriately to whatever life, whatever arises in life, that trust is a kind of freedom because it's the absence of a mistrust of our heart because our heart has taught us that when we're in certain situations, we're not skillful. We dig holes and we fall into them, and then it takes us a long time to get out of it if we ever get out of it. And that kind of heart we don't trust. So I, I like that definition. And I think it also could be seen in that same way that it's the absence of mistrust as opposed to trusting that your heart knows how to show up, knows how to be clear, knows how to respond appropriately. 
Thanks for the nice comments, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds and we can let go the words. I appreciate being here together. And feeling perhaps inspired, motivated to explore the happiness, the release, the freedom of integrity, reverence for life as a way of deeply caring for this life, this heart, and deeply caring for all beings. And thanks again for coming, everyone.